Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. In this week's show, I have a couple of very interesting studies to share with you. One on what professional portfolio managers think the stock market's going to be doing, and another put out by the Pew Research Institute on the impact of the coronavirus on people's personal economies. Because this is Halloween week, we're going to look at ways to keep your money from being scary, as well as looking at whether or not the estate tax rate will impact you. But let's get started looking at what the stock market did last week. And this is for the week ending October 23rd, 2020. In general, the markets were down a little, but not that much. The Dow closed down a little less than a percent. The S&P 500 closed down a little more than half a percent. The NASDAQ closed down a little more than a percent. Gold was up 0.03%, not a surprise with the indexes down. Oil was down a little less than 2.5%. The only real winner of the week was the 10-year Treasury yield, and it went up 6.51%. Because of that, the aggregate bond fund that we follow to look at the inverse relationship between funds and interest rates went down 0.36. So the 10-year Treasury yield went up 6.5%. The bond fund went down 0.36%. And finally, the dollar index also went down a percent. So it wasn't a bad week. It, you know, we have so much volatility going on right now between the election and the coronavirus. It's just very, very hard for the stock market to find a direction right now. It wasn't a concerning down week. It wasn't scary. It's just we went down for a little bit, and we'll just have to wait and see where that goes. So I'd like to share a study with you, and I know that at the end of the show, there's that disclaimer that nobody really listens to that says that you know past performance is no guarantee of future performance. Investing is risky. You can lose money. You've heard all of that. It's the typical disclaimer. Well, I also want to add before I share this research with you that professional money managers can be very, very wrong. I just think it's always interesting to see what's the opinion of the people who are handling huge amounts of money. So like if you have a third-party portfolio manager who's making investment decisions for you and maybe your financial advisor, then this is what they're thinking the market's going to do. It's also called institutional money. And I always like to look at it because I like to look at what's going on in some of the broader schools of thought to see whether or not I agree with it. So the first thing that I thought was really interesting was the investment outlook for the United States stock market over the next 12 months and half of the people that were interviewed 
thought that it was going to be bullish. So from here, over the next 12 months, they were expecting the stock market to be bullish. Less than, about 15% were bearish, and the, di the difference in that was neutral. So by far, now you have to understand, people who invest money for a living have a tendency to be bullish on the stock market. So you want to be careful not to overread too much into that. But I was really sort of surprised that that number was as high as it was. Additionally, just a little less than 50% thought that the market is right now fairly valued. Now, almost that many people also think it's overvalued at a very small percentage. Um, these are bar graphs, and it looks to be possibly less than 10% think that it's undervalued. Why does that matter to you? You know, it's easy to listen to the data, and if you can't make it real, then pretty soon it just sounds like I'm quoting way too many statistics. The reason this matters to you is by far, let's call it over 90% of the people who are investing money professionally, lots of money professionally, think the market is either worth what it should be or that it's overvalued. Now, what that tells me is that when you hear people say, oh, the market's going to blow up and be fabulous next year. We're going to have huge returns next year. The vast majority of people who do this for a living don't think that's right. They think that the market is either worth what it should be worth or it's worth too much. Now, that ties to whether or not they think the market is going to go up or down over the next six months. And most people are actually thinking that the markets will rise over the next six months, but um, as they're looking at where things are expected to go next year, it's not a huge rate of return. So when you're looking at um, when you're looking at what's going to happen over the market over the next 12 months, you need to talk to your own financial advisor. But according to this study, next year should be flat to slightly up. Okay, there it's not going to be screaming great returns. So when it's looking at the clients, by far most clients are either neutral or bearish. So people like you People like me, to a certain extent, because although I manage money, I'm not an institutional portfolio manager. Most of us are concerned only about, this looks to be about 20% of the people are thinking that everything's going to be great. So that also indicates that sentiment isn't awesome. They asked these money managers, what's the biggest risk? And by far, it's the coronavirus epidemic. 25% of the people interviewed said that. 15% roughly said the election. 10% are worried about the recession or the depression. And I would argue you could tack that onto the coronavirus numbers and probably that should really be about 35%. And then there's just a whole bunch of other smaller things that are very wonky but the big driver of what their concern is, 
is the coronavirus impact on what's going on? And I really think that that's probably a fair assessment. Personally, I would agree with that. I think that until we get a handle on the virus, it's going to be really hard to get the economy to go um, to go in the right direction for any sustained period of time. However, in the long run, as not uncommon at all, these asset managers are very optimistic. So when it looks at how the market's going to do over the next decade, so over the next 10 years, and the highest number that they gave was 6 to 10%. So the chart worked that way. So 50% um, of the people are expecting it up 6 to 10%. 30% are expecting it up 1 to 5. Um, then, oh, about 5%, 11 to 15, and about 5% of negative 1 to negative 5. That is on average. So it's not like over the next 10 years you're going to make 10% or 6%. It's every year you would make 6%. And because that's an average, if next year isn't great, it could make up for it in like the year after that. So overall, they're fairly optimistic. I always like looking at this. Um, I'm going to include the link, and I would encourage you, if you're interested in this, read the images, because it's really the easiest way to quickly get a sense of this, and I think you might be interested in what you find out. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And I have to admit that today is not really a legislative update. It is a Pew study that was done. It's the Pew Research Center. And the date of the article that I have that's the summary of it is from April 21st, 2020. So that you have a little bit of context and you understand at what point in the pandemic this data was coming out because things have changed a little bit. Some things have gotten a little bit better. Some things have gotten worse over the succeeding months. But it showed some data that I think is very, very important to see and understand. And it leads to some interesting financial planning conversations that I'd like to have with you. So the first thing that makes a lot of sense just as an overall finding is that people with lower incomes were more badly impacted by the coronavirus than the people with larger incomes. And that's for a lot of reasons. You know, first, when you have certain kinds of jobs, it's easier to work from home than if you have other kinds of jobs. And those more professional, more easy to run from the house jobs are more likely to survive a downturn than, say, working in a restaurant when you have to go in. Additionally, it's just been long understood that there is a large portion of our population that lives very much on the edge in the best of circumstances. And it looks like what's happened is that coronavirus has pushed quite a few of them just right over that cliff. And so as we're looking at a potential additional stimulus package, you know, this is the end of October. It doesn't look now like anything's going to happen until after the election next week, which seems remarkable to say. 
And then once it's a lame duck session, I'm not at all sure what's going to happen. But there's a lot of people out there hurting. And when you hear the Federal Reserve Chair, um, Jay Powell, say it's critical to have another coronavirus relief package, and you see this data, it begins to make more sense. So, for and remember, this is back in April, and looking at upper-income people, middle-income people, and lower-income people, and I don't have exactly those numbers right here in front of me. Again, I'm going to include a link to this study, and my recommendation is just go through and look at the graphs because the graphs give you great data that you can see at a glance. You don't have to read all the weeds. You don't have to get all the way into it to learn a lot. This is a really interesting study. So upper income people typically can pay all of their bills, all of their bills in full, except here's what really struck me about this. And this is why I wanted to talk about this. 7% cannot. So only 93% of upper income people can pay their bills every month. And and I, I found that really horrifying. You know, it's, it's they need to do some cash flow planning. They they need to listen to this show and they need to figure out how to figure out where that's money where that money's going. After the coronavirus hit, so again this is April, 11% of the people who are upper income did not think they'd be able to pay all of their bills. Middle income, typically 19% can't pay their bills. And, and that's a staggeringly high percentage of people. And that particular month in April, 26% of middle income people didn't think they'd be able to pay. And then finally, in lower income, 44% can't pay their bills every month. And 53% said in April they weren't going to be able to pay all of their bills. And, and really, that, that's heartbreaking. In, in such a developed nation that we live in, and as very, um, you know, we, we kind of take pride in, in being the greatest, to have 44% of our population unable to pay their bills every month, this is where you get into questions about what should we do with minimum wage. And that's not what this is about. I just found that, I, I found that statistic, even pre-coronavirus, really, really distressing. But the upper income people who can't pay it is an absolute mystery to me. I have no idea what they're using their money for. Now, this was, again, looking at the first round of stimulus and what were they going to use it for? And 34% of upper-income people are going to pay bills, 49% of middle-income people, and 71% of lower-income people. They said they were just going to use it to pay those bills that they couldn't pay before. So, you know, that really, when they talk about, well, gee, do we really want to give people the money like this? They're going to use it most likely for what they tell the Pew Research Institute they're going to use it for. Um, something else, which would be like random spending, 16% um, of the upper income people said they were just going to do something with it. Middle income people was 11, lower income was six. And I'm talking about this specifically because I think it's so easy to have a stereotype about people wasting money. And I just want to blow that up in this session because it looks very much to me 
like people are saying, oh my God, I cannot pay my bills and I'm going to use this to pay my bills. I don't see a lot of, of fraud and abuse in, in these numbers. Now, the next piece of data that I want to share with you has actually changed how I go about um, offering financial planning to clients and it has to do with emergency funds. And if you watch some financial celebrities, they will tell you six to nine months of emergency fund, which when you're, when you're sitting with no emergency fund at all is a completely overwhelming number. If you've listened to other things that I've done, or you've read my blog, you know that I like the idea of the two-week emergency fund, so you save two weeks of your bills first, and then you keep adding to it until you start creating multiples of months. But if you think about six months of bills, you're probably going to get too overwhelmed to start. But I'll tell you, it used to be that if people had good jobs that seemed steady and seemed secure, that they had held for a long time and they were responsible people and they were good at what they did, almost regardless of the industry, I did not necessarily think you needed nine months of emergency fund. Now, in truth, for some of the jobs right now, nine months isn't enough. But I do think that as you're looking at your own emergency fund situation, if you only have a month or two saved and you think that's enough, I cannot tell you what to do and I'm not giving you advice. This is a radio show. Really think about improving that and increasing it because this year proves to me that murder hornets do exist and I'm sitting right now taping in an ice storm in Oklahoma on October 23rd and Broadway's closed for a year and a half. I mean, so so unexpected, yes, that's the whole point of an emergency fund. So I really want you to be careful with it. For the people who didn't have emergency funds going into this, um, or people saying that they did have, let's put it that way, so 75% of people with upper income had an emergency fund. 48% of people with middle income and 23% of people with lower income saying that they could cover three months of bills. So what that tells me, and I knew it going into it, was over half of the people didn't have the emergency fund going into this. And so if you're one of those people, as soon as you can get on your feet, you want to try to save that emergency fund. No criticism from me because life gets in the way of sometimes doing the planning that we want to get done. We just don't. But if you don't have an emergency fund now, as soon as this gets better, it would be a really good time to start. And then if something else does go wrong, maybe you don't have all you need. But you've got a little bit more to try to help you get to a point you can make another plan. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and because this is the week of Halloween, I thought we'd have a little bit of fun in this section. Because one of the things that I have discovered over the years, I've been doing this for 17 years, a little bit longer now, I am a career changer, but I've been in personal finance for a very long time. And I have discovered that people are afraid of their money. And so since this is Halloween, I thought we would talk about ways 
to keep your money from being spooky and to give you some strategies that you can use so that you won't be afraid of your finances. You know, one of the reasons why we don't work on our finances, why we don't look at our retirement savings, because we don't look at our portfolios, we don't look at our cash flow, is because we're afraid of it. And it's just human nature to kind of dodge that thing you don't want to talk about. And I'll tell you that if you'll go ahead and look at your money carefully, It'll be a lot like turning on the lights after you've watched a scary movie and all those weird shadows you saw in the corner aren't nearly as bad with the lights on as they are with the lights off. And even if you discover you need to take care of something, knowing what you need to do will give you power. And when you have power, you're not afraid. So, the first piece of advice that I would give you is know what you spend. It's really important to track your cash flow. I don't like to call it a budget because when it's a budget, it sounds like it's a punishment. But if you know what you spend, then you know how much money you need to earn. You know how much emergency fund you need. You may be able to figure out how much life insurance you need, and you may be able to figure out how much retirement you need. So to my mind, it all comes back to cash flow when you're trying to solve all those problems. So know what you spend. Additionally, know what investments you own. Even if you're working with a financial professional, I want you to know roughly what's in your portfolio. Why is your asset allocation the way it is? Remember that your asset allocation is the way your money is divided between different kinds of investments. So stock investments, bond investments, American investments, international investments. What is the division and why is it that way? What was the goal for it? What is the historic rate of return of your portfolio? Now, I understand past performance is no indication of future performance. I totally understand that disclaimer because they don't want you to look at something like looking at the market for the last you know, great year and saying, oh, well, maybe the market will do that in the future. Okay, but the, we do have average rates of return that different kinds of investments tend to earn. If you're trying to figure out how much money you need to save for retirement, a piece of that equation is how much money you think those investments can earn. And if your portfolio isn't invested in a way that could possibly earn the rate of return you're assuming, your retirement plan will go completely off the rails. One of the things that I've seen over and over is people don't make enough of a correlation between their investment strategy and their retirement need. So maybe you don't like the stock market. Maybe you're afraid of it, so you want to be really conservative. And you know, here's the thing. If you're just filling out a traditional risk tolerance and everything you fill out lists you as conservative, 
then anyone who's helping you is probably not making a mistake by putting you into a conservative asset allocation. But on the retirement savings side, if you're using a different calculator, and especially if you're not working with someone here, and that investment calculator is assuming an eight or a nine, I've even seen some that assume 10, that's a little high by my taste, but a higher rate than what you're making, then what you think you need to save is not what you need to save. Because if the money is growing faster, you can get away with saving less. So be really careful with that. Participate in your company's retirement plan, especially if that plan offers a match. So if you put in 3% and they put in 3%, that's an instant 100% return on your money outside of market return. So it's really important to take advantage of that free money. It's very hard saving 3% a year to save enough for retirement. So you need to take advantage of anything that's working on your side. Have an emergency fund. We talked about that related to the Pew poll in the last section. And I would again say start with a small amount so you can gain some success. But I think you need to save a substantial emergency fund just to cover the bills in case everything falls apart like it has this year. So, you know, really it's several months, maybe six, maybe more. Your personal situation does have something to do with this, but you really want to be careful that you aren't overly optimistic because we call them emergency funds for a reason. And then finally, if you're working with a financial professional, you need to work with someone who will act as your fiduciary. A fiduciary is a legal standing, and it means that their interest comes ahead of yours, but in very specific legal ways. There's a lot of jargon out there. If you listen to my legislative updates, you know this is a pet peeve of mine. So you ask that advisor if they're willing to act as your fiduciary. Make them use the word and make them put it in writing. Make sure you know what they're being paid. Remember, everybody gets paid. Nobody works for free. But you should know how much money that person is making and you should know if your decisions are impacting how much money they are making. So if you take those basic steps, of course there's more to your financial plan than this, but it's a really great beginning. And it's like turning on the lights and looking in the corners and looking in the closet and looking under the bed and discovering that there really aren't monsters there and you'll feel a lot better and you'll sleep better at night. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today's question also fits in nicely with our Halloween theme. It's Peggy, I'm afraid that I will owe a state tax when I die. How can I avoid paying it? And depending upon what part of the country you live in, I probably have some good news for you right now. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act raised the amount of your estate that is excludable from estate tax 
to over $10 million. It's a $10 million base plus an inflation adjustment each year. So what that means is if you don't own $10 million worth of assets, you also won't have estate tax owed on your estate after you die. Now, you should know that part of the Biden tax plan gets rid of that bump up in excludable estate and drops it back to $5 million apiece. Again, for most people, they're not dying with $5 million estates. If you live on the coast, it might be more of an issue for you if your assets are worth more and your salaries are higher. But even then, if it's a spouse, it's $5 million for each spouse and isn't likely to impact most people. Remember, you can submit a question to askpeggy.com. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at peggydoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money. <laughs>